Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The door that finally opens With life flooding in Spilling out on the floor The core that ever was Now it will be The bones of Welcome back to Season 2 of Raised by Wolves, the podcast. I am once again your host, Holly Fry, and I am so excited to be here talking about another mind-bending season of the TV series Raised by Wolves and all of the happenings on Kepler-22b. The format of the podcast is going to be a little different this season. Last season, we talked with experts on AI, astronomy, psychology, historical religions, and more to examine the concepts and the themes of the show. This season, we're going to go behind the scenes and we're going to talk to the cast and crew to get their take on all of the drama unfolding on Kepler-22b as the atheists and the followers of Saul continue the conflict that ultimately destroyed Earth. We're going to operate under the presumption here that you have seen the new episodes as we cover them because we will be talking spoilers. So with all of that out of the way, and before we talk to today's guests, I want to tell you about five things that I can't stop thinking about from this week's drop. First of all, boy, those atheists are really settled in. They have got their Kepler-22b digs all tricked out. They have all their basic needs covered. They have a farm. Uh, No wonder this seems like a paradise to the kids that have been living out in the desert eating nothing but radioactive carbos. Mother is the surprise that keeps on surprising. She (laughs) is still really quick to violence, as we see right out of the gate, even without her necromancer eyeballs. She is a programmed android, but as we know, she is very special, and her new special power is apparently shame. Uh, (laughs) That, that, as humans, I think we can relate to and understand that it can make you do things that are irrational. So we'll see where that goes. She also gets to chat with her brother, the Trust. That is, of course, the AI that's running the show for the atheists. And she does that as she's settling into the atheist community, which comes with its own challenges. Since these two refer to each other as siblings, and since Mother is, of course, unique, I cannot help but wonder if we'll see some sibling rivalries pop up here. Uh, Everything from maybe big, epic debates to, you know, something as petty as a slap fight. We'll see. Uh, Marcus is still surviving. He's still looking real veiny. And thanks to having ingested Mother's eyes last season, uh, he maintains that fabulous look. 
sure, bless his heart. They certainly seem to have given him some durability, and apparently, also, he gained a little bit of magnetism when he swallowed those eyes, because he quickly finds friends who want to join him. Uh, Decima and Rill make for a very fascinating faux family unit. I cannot wait to see what plays out there. Return to the group. Two minutes remaining before detonation. Get the hell off her! That's my daughter! She's nobody's daughter. I need a shoulder pin. One minute remaining. It's the same shape as your back key. There. 30 seconds remaining. You have to disarm her too. She's a civilian model, non-violent. Too old to be playing with dolls, lady. Please. Speaking of families, Sue no longer has one. Paul has outright rejected her. That has to hurt. She, of course, doesn't have Marcus anymore since he went true believer and they essentially broke up. The atheists are not exactly welcoming her as one of their own, so she's just kind of left flapping in the breeze by herself. But if there is one thing that we know, Sue is tough as hell, and I am 100% rooting for her. And at least she and Mother are kind of pals now, so they have their little mommy group together that may or may not be helpful. We'll see. The last thing I want to mention from episode one is that there is an awful lot of fascinating debris littering this planet. Who the heck left all of this stuff lying around? Uh, There's like a Mithraic relic every 10 feet. So some of this is obviously just debris from the wreckage of the Ark, but there is also Saul's symbolism that they find that has obviously been there for a while, like that giant cave painting that Marcus found. And remember that temple from last season? There's This place is curious. There's stuff going on. We still don't know what it is, but I can't wait to see. All right, since we have a double episode drop for this first week of the new season, I have five more thoughts covering episode two. So buckle up, and then we're going to talk to a very amazing guest. All right, first off, Decima definitely seems to be crushing on Marcus. She does not seem to mind his veins. Uh, I gotta confess, there's a certain appeal to the family that Marcus is putting together and the way he is pitching it to people. Soul's light. I feel it burning inside you. I think you're the only human being I've actually ever wanted to touch. touch. I can see why Decima, somebody who obviously had some sort of familial loss in her background, would be drawn to this. And that, of course, also makes it seem all the more cruel when Marcus tells her that she should get rid of her one coping mechanism and erase Vril's memory. That's gotta suck. Like, you've put together something that helps you get through your day, and then the one person that you think is potentially really important in your future tells you you can't have it anymore. That's not cool. Here's another thing I want to talk about. That brutal punishment scene. Tamerlane, you have been convicted of an act of terrorism by committing the hate crime against Lamia and her family. Hey, cry my ass. She's a necromancer, a fucking machine like you. Violence is pain. Compliance is life. Just admit it, you hate human beings. You're never gonna pass the baton. Punisher begins. 
Repeat. Punisher, begin. Holy Saul, that was really hard to watch. Uh, that, plus the fact that the trust also made that man, Tamerlane, go door to door to apologize. Okay, to me, it makes it seem like the trust sense of justice might be so absolute that there's no room for any kind of nuanced concept of the punishment fitting the crime. He almost died. That looked really... I was... Until Mother said that he was not fatally injured, I wasn't certain. Campion's communion with my beloved number seven, Snake Baby, also very exciting and important to me. (laughs) The two of them have that incredible soulful gaze into one another's eyes. And it makes me wonder, like, do they intuit each other as siblings? Like, do they sense that they have a deeper connection? Or is Campion just kind of a natural animal person, despite the fact that he grew up without seeing them from the early years of his life? Or just, there's also the possibility that he's just an exceptional empath, and that extends to giant snake babies. So, damn, those atheists were mighty fast to lock an entire family of children outside of their safety bunker when they thought a serpent attack was imminent. That doesn't seem very cool. Uh, If they had survived, I have to wonder if they would have had to go door-to-door to apologize for what they did. That's all theoretical, because they were sucked into the acid sea. So I I guess uh, probably if you went by the trust sense of right and wrong, they probably got what they deserved. Uh, I don't know that I'm willing to level any kind of judgment at that level. Uh, Okay, so we also have to talk about the prophecy of the orphan boy in a foreign land because it seems to be on everybody's mind and everybody has a different idea about who they think the boy is, but they're all pretty certain it's somebody they know. Paul thinks it's him. Decima thinks it's Marcus. And I think it's interesting that mother and father aren't Mithraic, but they're kind of acting the same way because they sure seem to think that Campion is the one that is going to lead humanity. So without even buying into that prophecy, they're kind of living out their own version of trying to fulfill it. I cannot help that all of these disparate ideas of who the one is are going to lead to some conflict down the road. And now for the very exciting part... To help us sort all of this and more out, Aaron Guzikowski, the creator and executive producer of Raised by Wolves and one of my favorite people to talk to, is here to give us some insights on all of this and more. Aaron, first of all, welcome back, because I love having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. I have so many things I want to talk to you about. So let's jump right in. A lot of stuff has happened since we last saw everybody on Kepler-22b. Uh, and I'm wondering, from your perspective as the mastermind beho- behind the whole thing, what is the most important thing that happened between the last thing we saw in season one, that being my beloved snake baby emerging from the shuttle, to the first thing that we see in season two, which is mother's paralyzed body out in what is almost an idyllic nature scene. Almost, yeah. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. She uh, found herself all the way on the other side of the planet, Um, ironically, where they they always wanted to get to, though, uh, when they they didn't get there quite the way they had envisioned. Um, And that pit... That they escaped down in that uh, in that lander at the end of season one, it turned out to be this kind of 
subterranean artery that took them all the way through the planet, shot them out on the other side. And that's where they find themselves now in the, in the tropical zone, which is, uh, it seems at least, uh, when you first look around that it's going to be a much, uh, kinder, gentler environment, uh, to try and exist in. That sets up this beautiful juxtaposition, right? Because the tone is very different now. We've transitioned. It's not so much worrying about this little scrappy band of a few people trying to survive as best they can. Now we are in an established colony. Most of those basic human needs are met, like people have food and shelter. But now we are seeing the problems that come with being part of a more established society. What to you is now the biggest challenge that's faced by the atheist colony at this stage of the story? Uh, they have many challenges. Um, interestingly, they're, uh, and, you know, to answer many of those challenges, they actually have their, their leader, who is really just a computer. Uh, and, uh, ironically, a very godlike uh, computer, given that the, the, you know, it's atheists that we're uh, talking about. Uh, but it's this quantum six computer. It's an organic uh, computer, and it's, it's incorruptible. It cannot be reprogrammed. And it can only make decisions that uh, are for the for for the best of everyone, you know, for uh, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, as, uh, as Spock once said. Uh, but the, that's very much the uh, philosophy uh, at work there. So uh, they really have, a lot of them uh, have faith in this machine, you know, to continue making the right decision. So this colony that. On the face of it, is doing fairly well. They they they've landed. They're you know they're they're finding you know bountiful food, and uh, they're starting to find very interesting uh, relics of whomever had existed here before them. Uh, and things are going well. So I think is it, the uh, the the issue is that eventually this the trust, as they call this giant quantum computer that makes all the decisions. Uh, eventually, it's supposed to pass the baton, so to speak. Uh, there's supposed to be a time uh, once it decides that, okay, uh, the humans, they can take it from here. And I've identified one of them who can now uh, take the baton of leadership and, uh, and I, they won't need me anymore. They can shut me off. And that will be, you know, for the betterment of humanity and, and, and all of those good things. Uh, but, you know, that hasn't happened. And many of the uh, members of this colony believe it never will that this computer you know hates them and or just doesn't respect them or uh will never you know is it's never going to really be satisfied with our progress and it's never going to pass the baton so this is kind of their one of the issues that they're kind of dealing with which is causing some friction uh within the atheist ranks in my heart i want you to make propaganda merchandise that says trust the trust but <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working on it. All right. I'll be the first one in line with the shut up and take my money gesturing. Um, (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. On the flip side, I want to know what you think as we're opening onto this story and this season, what the biggest challenge is at this point faced by Marcus and his band of Nouveau Mithraics, because obviously it's a scrappier existence, but they also get to start fresh. They do get to start fresh. And, you know, Marcus, you know, at this point in the story now, the Mithraic are very much the underdogs. You know, in season one, uh, they were going to be the the kind of the, they were going to own the planet. They were showing up in this large arc. Uh, they had the numbers. They had the technology. They got there first. Uh, but thanks to Mother, uh, that was all uh, put an end to and uh, the arc was destroyed. Uh, so the atheists now kind of have the, uh, the leg up on the Mithraic. So Marcus is sort of, you know, they're, they're kind of like these terrorists kind of hiding out in the hills. They don't really have much of anything. 
And so his idea is that what he needs to do is start converting all of these atheists because there really only are a handful of actual true believers left. And Marcus decides, you know, rather than try and, you know, fight and destroy these people, I'm going to try and find a way to convert them. Because uh, he really does believe uh, that, you know, uh, at the end of the day, they can all be united uh, via this uh, belief in soul. And the way he believes he's going to do that is by finding the tree of knowledge, uh, which w was in the Mithraic scriptures. And he's been finding evidence uh, in this tropical zone that somewhere, you know, in this vicinity, this tree exists. And according to the prophecy, the, anyone who eats from the fruit of this tree uh, will be made pure. And he takes that to mean basically this tree, whatever it is, if it's a piece of technology or an organic thing or whatever it actually is, is going to help him basically convert all of these atheists and, uh, and win the war uh, that way. Uh, so he's on, the, he's on the hunt for this tree of knowledge, uh, which eventually he comes to discover uh, has not actually been grown yet. He's actually looking for the seeds, uh, which are uh, found by someone else uh, early on in the season. One of the things that becomes so compelling in looking at these two groups and how they're functioning at this stage of the game is that we're being shown these different ways of life and ideologies, but both of them have some pretty appealing ideas and some not-so-appealing ideas about how society is is going to work and how it should work. So I'm wondering for you as a storyteller, how important is it to keep viewers in that sort of uneasy space where it's hard to make a confident moral decision or judgment about who the good guys are? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important to me because I think that's just what it's like to be a human being on this planet, to really kind of keep track of, uh, you know, who the good guys are and who the bad guys are because it always seems to be kind of changing, you know, depending on... Uh, on what's going on around us. Um, and yeah, and I think that's important too, just that, you know, in terms of, you know, it's always been about faith, you know, what, what are humans going to put their faith in? Is it, is it going to be technology? Is it going to be a, a imaginary deity or, or a real deity, an alien, you know, whatever it might, an android or another human being, uh, you know, whatever the case might be. But uh, we're not trying to pick a winner so much in terms of, you know, the believers or the atheism, you know, what, 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 how do we get out of this mess sort of thing. Um, but just to say that really what's important is that something unites us, you know, that I think uh, people need to be united. They need a common purpose. And I think um, oftentimes it seems it doesn't matter really so much what the purpose is, is it's more about the fact that it unites us and causes us to, uh, to work together as a kind of a single organism. It seems like when we don't have that, we kind of, uh, we start to eat one another as it were. Squabbling comes from idleness. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. You and I talked a lot last season about the morality of parenting and how these ideas about what it means to be a parent, to have a family are shown with the androids as well as the human parents. And they kind of form a juxtaposition. And in these early episodes, what I really love is that we see that mother and father, but we really get a sense of it from mother in this, this early couple of episodes has evolved in her own way. She mentions specifically feeling shame, which any human knows is an incredible driver of your behavior and your emotions and your psyche. So from your perspective, how has mother changed as a parent when we see her coming into this new phase? Well, you know, she, she feels like she made a, a huge mistake, uh, you know, last year where she kind of went off on this, on this track that was just almost kind of, 
you know, experimenting with selfishness on some level, you know, trying to figure out, you know, who she is, you know, outside of the family, outside of being a caregiver. She has all this power, you know, she's the most powerful thing on the planet. And, you know, she started to kind of contemplate what that could possibly mean, you know, beyond uh, caring for the children and being this kind of servant to uh, humanity. And, you know, she had thought that she was going to give birth to something that would, you know, uh, be sort of the next evolutionary step, something that is, you know, both synthetic and organic, and it's going to be sort of the next, uh, the, the human evolution that we're all uh, waiting for. Um, but unfortunately, it was not that at all. It was not a humanoid baby, and it turned out to be this this serpent, this horrible monster, uh, which, the, you know, she tried to destroy it, but, she, but now she's feeling still extremely guilty over over that whole uh, experience even though you know part of her still feels this kind of connection to the to her her dark child as it were but she's also feeling like she let down the rest of the family you know that she's kind of um, you know, she's kind of turned her back on uh, the needs of, of especially Campion, uh, her most favorite child. And so what she tries to do, you know, to kind of help, you know, work through her, the, all of the shame and regret she's feeling, she starts really pushing Campion uh, to become a leader. She wants, you know, she feels like if she can get Campion to uh, reach his kind of full potential as a human being, and, and she sees him almost as a kind of a god among humans, you know, she doesn't really, she has, you know, it's her son or the closest thing she has to it. Um, so she almost sees him a little bit uh, in a brighter uh, place than, you know, that she sees the rest of humanity. That, that's where she's pinning all of her hope on, on this child. And so she really starts pushing him to be uh, the person who's going to take the baton when the trust, the supercomputer decides to, to, you know, choose a human being. Uh, she, she's deciding that it's going, going to be Campion and no matter what she needs to do in order to make that happen. But, you know, uh, so she, she starts really, really, I think, you know, before she was kind of being neglectful and now she's being kind of super, you know, kind of, uh, helicoptery, uh, with Campion and trying to, uh, kind of push him to, 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 you know, fulfill, uh, this great potential that she believes, uh, he has within him. Uh, I I love seeing more of that mother-son dynamic with the two of them, where it's very much on Earth. She'd be pushing him to be a doctor or a lawyer. Um, <laughs> exactly. Okay, I'm going to ask you <laughs> what may be a silly question, but I think it's yeah. legitimately interesting. On yeah. your scorecard, based on everything that we know at this point from season one up through these first couple of episodes of season two... Who do you think are the better parents, mother and father or Sue and Marcus? <laughs> um, well, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty close call at, at this point, though I would say, uh, you know, I think they're all equally uh, unqualified in a lot of ways uh, because I think they're really all dealing with their own sort of transformations. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, they also all, you know, with the possible exception of Marcus, you know, I think Marcus believes he has the ability to love but i don't he doesn't really have it you know he i think he was you know kind of destroyed as a human being as a child and he has this you know he believes he can be a father but he could you know he's he's still a child himself right. you know so i don't think he doesn't really have it in him uh to be the father of a child in the way he really needs to be and you know i think out of all of them i think in some ways uh probably father uh the android is the most qualified because he is 
uh, probably the most singular about it. He's not as distracted, though this season he does become distracted uh, in some ways, more so than usual. Uh, but before that, uh, you know, unlike Mother, he he was always kind of on it. You know, he was all about the children, and he didn't get distracted too much with his own sort of you know emotions and thoughts and you know uh, and, and and wishes, other than his his wish to be a, a great comedian. Uh, you know, he keeps it pretty simple. And, you know, <laughs> but beyond that, uh, he's 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 very focused. So uh, I think he he he's definitely the winner. I think Mother obviously has the most want, you know, the most love in her, you know, the most, uh, she's more emotional than a human being, you know, by many times. So I think, you know, if she could find a way to, to direct that energy properly, uh, she would, she would be the ultimate caregiver, but, uh, it's, it's so much, so much emotion that, uh, it's hard to control. I do have to say, I historically do not enjoy a dad joke, but if father tells it, it's the most charming thing that there ever was. Yes, uh, yes. It's a, a certain magic baked into that. So we also have this interesting kind of new dynamic that continues to develop here this season, which is that mother and Sue have this friendship. They're like Kepler 22B's first mom's group, essentially. <laughs> exactly. Who do you think between the two of them has the most to gain and the most to lose in that dynamic? Because I thought about it and thought it was obvious. And then when I thought a little more deeply, it stopped feeling obvious to me. Yeah. You know, I think at the beginning, uh, I think Sue had a lot to gain from it because yeah, having a necromancer as your friend is, is a great thing, especially if you find yourself, you know, she she's an atheist turncoat. She pretended to be a Mithraic in order to survive. And now she's being, you know, thrown back in with the atheists and they all know, uh, you know, what she did. Uh, so she's having a real hard time kind of integrating and being accepted and, you know, feeling safe amongst uh, the atheists. Uh, but she's best friends with mother and everyone knows, you know, you don't mess with mother and they're not going to mess with any friend of mother. So I, she has a lot to gain. And I think in that sense, um, but then as uh, you know, things happen, it starts to be, you know, I think being in a relationship with mother of, of any sort is, is always kind of a, a complicated, you know, proposition, you know, given all of her, uh, you know, the things she says, and then there's all that goes unsaid. So she's very hard to kind of figure out, but uh, yeah, I think at the end of the day, you know, honestly, and I think Mother, too, loses out. You know, Sue obviously uh, is a human being and, and I think succumbs to, uh, you know, human pressures and uh, at the end of the day doesn't turn out to be as uh, steady a friend as Mother would have hoped. Uh, but uh, so I don't know, perhaps it's equal. I think it, it's, it goes back and forth. Seesaws. You have kids of your own. So I'm sure that mapping out the development of all of these children on the show has some gravity that's lent to it by real life. How much do you find yourself incorporating the things that you're going through as a parent uh, with your kids into the journeys of the kids on Kepler 22B? I think subconsciously quite a lot. I, I think it would be impossible not to. I, th- I mean, uh, Campion and Paul have... A lot of similarities between two of my sons. Not purposely. It just seems they uh, they kind of turned out that way. And with the casting too, the the actual actors are semi similar to to the kids, or they were at one time. They're growing up now, and they look different. And just a sense that they kind of are going to do, you know, that they're these kind of they're they're born with all these kind of fully you know made brains. Like you try and teach them things, but they kind of are who they are in a lot of respects. You know what I mean? They're uh, they kind of come out of this mold and. There are little things that you can kind of uh, 
influence, but uh, not as much as you think. So they're always kind of surprising you that way with just how just how much they have in them. You know, there's just, they're so preloaded with, uh, with personality and, you know, and, and wants and, you know, and, and, and different tastes and, you know, and, and, and you don't really know where it comes from. You know, you're thinking back, like, I don't remember my father, grandfather, it must be some from <laughs> great, 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 you know, I don't know which, uh, gene that came from, but, uh, it's, it's fascinating to me. Uh, just how fascinating they are. But in any case, yeah. And I think that I, I try, you know, aspects of them probably end up in all six kids in, in one way or another. And even the seventh, the, uh, the giant destructive serpent who, uh, you know, this <laughs> <laughs> is very, who doesn't want to listen, you know, that kind of thing. I imagine there are days when your children feel like an uncontrollable destructive serpent. I'm, they, yeah, I'm not a parent, but I'm guessing. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, for the last question I want to ask you, if there What's one thing that you could plant in the minds of viewers? One thing you wanted them to know as they go on this journey through the next six episodes of season two, what would it be? Um, just to kind of pay attention and look around uh, at everything in this environment, because I think in terms of where the season ends up, kind of the the, the big twist, as it were, it's it's all right there. Uh, it, it, it's for all to see. Um, so I think it's, uh, which I quite like about that. Uh, I, I would say it's that. I would just to say pay attention to the, the denizens of this environment and uh, just in terms of uh, where we're all headed and, and where it all goes, uh, it, it's kind of laid out from the very beginning. Oh, now I'm going to be rewatching over and over, um, <laughs> which is great. Aaron, thank you so, so much for this. It's always so good to chat with you. Oh, likewise. Thank you, Holly. Much obliged. This episode of the podcast has been a little longer than you should probably expect for the rest of the season, and that's because we were covering two episodes of the television show. But next week, we're down to one episode. It'll be a little shorter, and our guest is going to be Abby X, co-executive producer of Raised by Wolves. Raised by Wolves, the podcast is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio. It's hosted and written by me, Holly Fry. The podcast is produced and edited by Jeff Heimbuck and executive produced by Ethan Fixell, with additional assistance from James Foster. If you haven't already subscribed, rated, or reviewed Raised by Wolves, the podcast, please do so on the iHeartRadio app, HBO Max, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to watch the series itself on HBO Max with new episodes. Episodes available to stream on Thursdays.